0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of season two. If you listened to the last episode, you'll notice I am back as the introer. I don't know if that's a real word, but that's what I'm calling it. It was fun to have Ben do a little surprise intro. So watch out, there might be more of those. But for today, Ben and I want to talk about something that was kind of on our mind a lot coming back from an offsite. And you know, you always have these like big conversations, big um, thoughts, themes that everyone's sort of whispering about during an offsite. And for us, it seemed like this constant theme kept coming back of like startup growing pains is the best way I know how to describe it. I think I've said this before on the podcast, but it kind of feels like we're in our teenage years here at Novatic. Like we're no longer the pre-product market fit child, but we're not like an adult established IPO company, obviously kind of in the, it's a big range, but in the middle of there. And it's kind of like an awkward phase where you can no longer just blame yourself on being a child anymore, like a teenager, right? Like you're kind of supposed to be an adult, but you're not really an adult yet. And so I thought it'd be interesting to just talk about that on the podcast. Like what's it like going from once you do have product market fit, you're seeing some success to like kind of navigating those growing pains of, okay, I'm going from a startup to like a real company. But before we dive into all that, Ben, how are you doing and what you drinking?
1: I am doing well. I really enjoyed our offsite last week in Durham, my first time in North Carolina, and I absolutely loved it. I did come home with a little bit of a cold and also like a little bit of a rattlesnake issue. I had one in my backyard on Monday night and our HOA sent out an email that there's been like three or four sightings in the last week. So they're very active right now here in the valley of Phoenix, Arizona. But other than that, I'm good and I'm happy to be home. And I'm actually drinking Miller Lite, which is a testament to the motherland. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. So don't usually drink Miller Lite, but I had one floating in my fridge. So here we are.
0: First off, hope you're okay with the rattlesnakes. That was not what I was expecting. I knew you were feeling a little sick. I did not know about the rattlesnakes.
1: It's all good. I live right on the foothills of a bunch of mountains here in the desert, so it's to be expected, I suppose.
0: Still, that's crazy. I'm drinking something similar. I scavenge through my fridge. I'm traveling, that's why my background looks a little different, and I'm drinking a high noon. Not usually my choice, but like, if I have to go for a seltzer, high noons are definitely the best. Well, cheers. Cheers. But Ben, I gave a long intro, you know, at the beginning about how we're going through this growing pains, how there's been a shift. Just curious, like, how does it feel on your end? How would you describe it now that we're kind of no longer just like a small startup?
1: I would say ultimately it's really fun and exciting, right? This is your goal when you start the startup stage is to your point. Well, we don't really know what we have. I don't have product market fit. We don't have an ICP. We don't have a very big team. Once all those things start to change as they have for us in like the last, I would say like six to eight months or so. It's really exciting, right? It's what you hope that your startup will become. You've gained traction. You are in an amazing spot growing very quickly. So these are all very good things, but I also think it's a little bit of a balance. A lot of people have a lot of ideas around how to take company from where we are now to kind of the next phase. And I think something that's important, and maybe I'm holding on to a little bit to a fault, is I think it's important to change up some of the processes the way we're doing things, our hiring plans, getting rid of some of the non-scalable things that got us to where we are today. But I'm also very protective over some of the things that we have done in the past that also got us to where we are today. And I think there's a very fine line there, right? Like the way we are hyper-focused on culture, team building, pulling retention has been very strong. And so some of the stuff that I feel very confident about that have got us to our place today, I'm still like, I think maybe holding on to. And so I think Natalie, for me, the struggle is, I know there need to be changes and updates to certain processes, but at the same time, I have a lot of confidence and belief in what has gotten us here. So I think trying to take a bite of both apples, if you will.
0: I think that dichotomy of like, we have to do some of the things that got us where we are, right? Like you kind of built a brand off of doing things that weren't normal. Like we talk a lot about our buyer experience on this podcast, right? Like a lot of seasoned sales leaders probably would be very anti the fact that we don't really do structured discovery. That's not the most scalable thing because we change it up depending on what the prospect wants. So it is this weird shift when you're in this phase. If you have to recognize what got you to this place and like what sets you apart and you kind of can't lose that magic because I think we've all seen companies that started off really cool and awesome and then they scaled and brought in senior leadership and you're like, oh no, it turned into every other company. But also you got to grow at some point, right? Like we can't be doing everything that's not scalable because we just don't have enough hours of people today.
1: I think I'm going to talk about like my team specifically and, and people in general a lot on this podcast as I was prepping for it. But as we get to the place we are now, I think a reason we've had a lot of success, honestly, is the amazing people that we do have in seat today. And I'm not saying that to just be like very stereotypical or I guess, cliche, I really do believe it. And I think now more than ever, employee retention and making sure those who have gotten us to our positions that we are in today and who know the product and the market very well and who are gonna be instrumental in getting us to our next goals are happy, are in a good spot. So I think now more than ever, I've placed a large emphasis on my team's individual happiness, work-life balance, you know, h- how they feel about their role and their future at Nevada. So a lot of my reflection as I was prepping for this was all around the amazing people that we have and the importance of keeping them.
0: So, that you kind of predicted my next question, which was going to be about how has your day to day changed? And I'd love to dive in a little more into that shift of like when you started, you were the only seller, like you were the AE. And now, like you said, your main job is making sure your AEs are happy. Like, can you talk about that process and sort of how you've adapted to it?
1: Yeah, it's been really hard for me. I think I'm nowadays maybe very self-conscious sometimes about my role at Nevada, because while I still work with customers, I kind of have like my own pipeline that, that comes and goes. And I always enjoy that. And I've always said, and I always will, no matter where I'm at in my career, I will always be a salesperson. I will always make sure that I at least have a couple of deals in my pipeline. I think it's really important to stay top of mind, front and center. And it's harder to lead a team when you aren't in the trenches with them. So to some capacity, I will always be in there with them. But when, for the first like year or so at Nevada, it was so easy to like prove my value or prove my worth because I was tied directly to a number. I had a target. I was setting my goals, closing deals, all these sorts of things. And now I'm not. I don't have a target. My job is full-time head of sales, managing people, managing my team. And so sometimes I have these moments of like, I don't know, I am important. I am impactful and, and helpful, right? Like even though I don't have like necessarily a revenue number tied to myself individually, I think that's something that I've struggled with a little bit that honestly I never saw coming.
0: It's funny, I've been thinking about this a little bit for next year. We've been talking about how, like, you know, I've been doing podcasts and webinars, probably going to increase that. And I have a little bit of this fear of, like, am I just going to become a talking head? Like, (laughs) I think that's what comes with leadership sometimes. You're like, oh, no, like, I was praised in my early days for doing stuff, for being an executor, for being an IC. And it's a really weird shift from going from I'm being praised for my outputs to, like, I am being praised for my thoughts and my strategies and talking on things and being a thought leader, but you kind of have to do it at some point, right? Like, yes, we talked about the scalability. You can't just be doing everything. And I think that's one thing I see founders in particular really struggle with. It's like you are rewarded as a founder for your grind. Like the early days, that's all you have. And sometimes you can almost be like detrimental by doing more because you're impeding with other departments. Like I think that's a big sign you'll start to get a founder when you're in this stage, but suddenly you're like, oh, more work isn't going to solve things anymore.
1: And I think when you get out of the startup phase into the phase that we are in now, there's a different level of importance on execution on specific roles. So like a year and a half ago, it would have made a lot of sense for Ben to own all upsell, to own my own quota, to like lean in with marketing, to, to do a bunch of different things. And I think because we work at a startup, our first reaction to everything is just let me do it, give me more, I'll wear a million hats, but you get to a point in your company where it's like, that's actually more detrimental.
0: I think a big thing, that we realized and that you realize in this page is like, ownership is really important. I've talked to the team about this before, but I think there's this fear of as you get bigger as a company, you implement process, you're going to lose like innovation. But I think what happens is if you don't have process, then no one feels ownership and then innovation doesn't happen. So to your point where it really falls is no one is ultimately responsible for it. And so when there's like a little thing that needs to get done or something slips to the crack, like it ends up just turning into a game of like, well, Ben should have done that. Natalie should have done that. And yes, we're all adults and we try not to do it. But like, it, it's our nature because you're like, well, I'm running my own department. Like, don't get on me for not doing this random thing I was helping on as a side project, like more than the actual workload. I think it is the ownership aspect that really you see. That's when the cracks start to come in departments that don't have clear ownership.
1: I completely agree. Natalie, what's your perspective on restructuring reorganizing the founder role when you come out of like the startup stage to whatever the hell stage you want to name what we're in right now, because I think that's been a really important part of what we've done here at Nevada. And it wasn't always super seamless. And, you know, I think we're really excited about like some of the restructure we've done, but you know, what's your take and your perspective and advice on that?
0: I think one thing, again, it's really hard is the early days your founders. You're awarded for doing everything and being good at everything and like contributing to everything, but at some point, like if you're hiring people who have ownership over something, but as a founder, you're still and obviously like you're still going to contribute and talk to them and get feedback. But I think founders often just want to help. They're like, let me help you. Let me do something. But you're actually could be hurting that department, which is really hard. And I I think because you just don't want like too many cooks in the kitchen, or let's say you have a process of doing it, and they have a different way of doing it. It's not like one's right, but you just kind of can't have multiple people doing conflicting things. So I do think as a founder, it can be really tempting to just be like, oh, I want to help every department as much as possible. But like they might actually just need like feedback and leadership advice more than they necessarily need you to action something. Early as a founder, if someone comes to you for help, you often interpret that as like, I need to do something versus oftentimes now it's like, I might just need to vent to you. Like you, you're like, you're my boss. Like I just really might need you to hear me out on this or like, I want you to coach me how to do this. Like, I don't want you to just solve it. And even like, I've definitely been guilty sometimes of in a leadership position, just be like, oh, I'll do it. Let me fix it. Ben knows like anytime there's anything that happens with like people that comes up our a company, my first instinct, probably annoying is like, how can we solve it? And then I realize you're, you're not coming to me to solve it. You're just coming to me to talk about it. Ben, I did want to ask you kind of going even a little deeper about your transition from a leader or like a IC to a leader. You know, you've been in leadership positions before, but like, how did you kind of learn or adjust that skill set? Like, was it a conscious shift? You're like, okay, I'm a leader now. I'm gonna read all these books and do all this research, or did was it kind of like little by little? You just felt your job shifting from an IC to a leader?
1: Yeah, I would say it was a lot of more of the little things, and it was something that I've always obviously wanted to do. Anybody who knows my background and like how I got started at Nevada, it was always a dream of mine to have this position. And as the company was scaling, as you mentioned, kind of took a step back from like a pure IC to more of like a full-time manager, head of sales. And I think what was really helpful with my transition is constantly asking for feedback from my team. I always have a position as a leader of you should lead from the front. You should not ask your team to do anything you wouldn't do. And again, very, very opposed to a leader who's not willing to be in the trenches. Someone who's trying to tell you how to run a deal who hasn't sold a deal at Nevada in six months. That's a big no, no for me. That does not garner a lot of trust or respect from your team. So it's this difficult balance of, I want to give my team a lot of autonomy. I want to work very closely with them. I want to work my own deals. But as I transition into like a true head of sales position and a manager of them asking them like what they need from me, what would that relationship look like to be successful? How can I continue to set them up for success? So in a lot of ways it it becomes less honestly about me. It just becomes a lot more about them, what they need, how I can serve them. And that's kind of like the hat I try to wear. Also, you have to learn from your mistakes. I have a bunch, a bunch of times, and I'm so thankful that I have a team who will tell me that they will tell me that like the way I delivered something was awful, incorrect, or we need to change that moving forward. Or I can cause more confusion or stress or concern if I don't deliver or have all the details and things like that. So constantly asking your team for feedback, trusting their guidance, because I'm not, interested in learning how to be a manager for everybody i'm interested about being an amazing manager for my team so like all i really care about right now is what they need and how i can best serve them and i really appreciate a culture where they call me out and that's so helpful because this is you know first time for me
0: okay one more question i said that was the last question how did you create that culture because i think a lot of times founders will say no tell me when things are wrong but people don't like i think people get nervous that if they give critique or feedback that their job would be on the line Um, i have some ideas but curious how you foster that
1: It's really the same tactic you use in sales, right? You ask a discovery question that you really want to know the answer to. And the prospect says, no, I'm good. Everything you covered, everything looks good. Thanks so much. You did an amazing job. That's not true. They just don't want to tell you ask again, ask in a different way, continue to ask, continue to probe. So that's kind of what I do is just continuously ask for feedback to the point where like, I don't accept, I don't have any feedback as an answer. And uh, they always have something. You just got to get it out of them.
0: I find before also asking about like specific areas work really well. Like if you're just like, what's not going well in your job? Someone's like, I don't know, everything's great. But if you ask about very niche topics, that helps. I also find just having the space for it is so important. Like if you do one-on-ones, but all of your one-on-ones are super tactical. That's never giving the space for feedback. And you might leave like five minutes at the end to be like, so how's things going? That's not acceptable. That's not actually giving the space. One thing I've implemented in the past is once, if I have a weekly one-on-one with someone once a month, that one-on-one is just dedicated to like high-level strategic feedback, like nothing tactical. And I think you have to give people the space to air things that way you don't talk about anything like to-dos or work. So they can get in that proper headspace and prepare them, like, let them know the questions you're going to ask. Cause I know for me in the moment, you might ask me like, what are you upset about? Honestly, I might be like, I don't know. It's been a pretty good day. I'm good. But if you give me like a week and something bad happens that week, then I'm like, I'm going to jot this down and complain about it. So let people prepare and give the proper space for that feedback.
1: I agree. I also try to circle back on that kind of stuff. So like we have our sales team meeting on Thursday. And if I'm delivering any sort of news, what I'll tend to to do is add to like our one-on-one doc for the following week with each of my reps individually, circling back on that topic to be like, hey, Natalie, you know, last week in our sales I delivered XYZ, you know, our quota numbers for Q4. I asked on the call if anybody had any questions, concerns, thoughts. It was kind of quiet, but I just wanted to circle back on that. Like, how are you feeling? You feeling okay? Like, let's let's open up the conversation. So again, just kind of like revisiting and giving them more opportunities to discuss it. So like what I'm really interested in, and I think it would be helpful for a lot of startups to understand is when you realize that like you have something and you're coming out of the startup phase, there's two ways I feel like that a companies go about this, right? Where, hey, we have some traction. It's going super, super well let's like hire a ton of people because like this thing is going to blow up. Right. And we all kind of know how that story plays out. Oftentimes it maybe it leads to overhiring. It leads to bad scenarios. I actually think Nevada had a little bit of a miss on the other side of it, where we were way too reactive with hiring. And I don't have like a perfect formula for you, but I definitely think that your leadership team will know when you are reaching a breaking point. And as founders specifically or leaders, if your ICs are telling you this, you need to listen.
0: There is definitely at this point that you just start kind of feeling those early signs, sort of like you were saying of, you know, you're starting to get a little more traction in the market. People are starting to recognize you a little more. Deals are smoother. Like I, I feel like there's a just a degree, and I think it does kind of align with product market fit. But I don't think that has to be like the perfect symbol of it. I think it's more just when like and I'm curious how you would feel about this. When you're on calls and no longer you have to like justify how much you raised or how big you are. Like I feel like in the early days. We constantly had to justify our size, had to mention, like, you know, that we're scaling responsibly. I felt like there was a point where we just no longer had to do that.
1: Yeah, that was definitely, like, pretty exciting moment when you see companies that we partner with who are calling out Nevatic or including Nevatic in, like, their top recommendations for tech stack. Like, you have a lot of those, like, holy crap moments, like, not like the official we made it moments, but it certainly feels really, really strong. I think the way I was thinking about this, when you realize you're kind of reaching a breaking point or you're stepping out of startup into more scaling is when bandwidth problems begin negatively affecting company outcomes. So for example of this, like if the sales team is flooded with so many leads, we're just throwing so many leads at them and all of a sudden win rates start to decrease. They're still hitting their targets. They're still crushing their goals, but like win rates start to decrease. It's like, hold on, why are win rates decreasing? Well, the win rates are decreasing, Ben, because I'm on eight calls a day and I'm probably only good on about five of them. Like, okay, thank you for sharing that. That's good to know. We need to go hire another sales rep so that you're only on four to five calls a day and you can be locked in for all of them versus like Natalie got us eight of these amazing leads and you kind of only tried on five or six of them, but you didn't really care because you have so many to work on that like you're not concerned. Like that's affecting company outcomes. And when you see that start to happen, that's when you know you need to begin hiring, changing processes, and kind of getting out of that startup phase a little bit.
0: I think too, it's when, you just realize the way you're doing it currently. Like I think a good call is like if a certain process or a task is taking up like 10 or more percent of your time, like I feel like you start realizing like, I don't know, like maybe you don't have any automation. So you're manually marking every single lead or something or manually routing every single lead, like things like that, where you're just like, then this isn't, this is not scalable. And it just is really pissing me off to do. That's probably not a very good metric, but honestly, I think we have those things where like, this is not going to work when we're getting a certain size. Like you can recognize there are certain tasks you're doing. We're like, this works when we're this many people. This isn't going to work when we have this many leads or this many people.
1: You know, what's hard about this topic, but I also love about it because I am the subjective thinker of the two of us is a lot of this to your point is kind of like gut feel. It's when you start to feel this, when you feel that this is happening, it's a lot of subjective feelings and gut feelings versus like objective uh, metrics, which makes me happy because I'm definitely more of like a feel guy versus a numbers guy. So I just wanted to plug that. But I think it's a good point to bring up. Like there's not a playbook around like XYZ company. You are no longer a startup. You're in the scaling phase. It's different for everybody. And we certainly recognize that. But I think like there are certain signs that you can be very like in touch with around, okay, time to get rid of some of the stuff we were doing that doesn't scale time to rethink some of these processes. But Also, please keep in mind companies, whatever got you to where you are today to have the success, to put you in the driver's seat that you're in, don't get rid of that either because that's ultimately what got you where you are today. And chances are a lot of that stuff is going to get you to 10 million, 15, 20 million. So don't get rid of it all.
0: I think your point of like, you can't measure it. It's because it's often signals before you measure. So yes, there's like product market fit calculations you can do. I think we did like a YC helped us with one. You can go look those up. I don't have them on the back of my hand, but. The problem is like, if you wait till that moment, you might be a little too late. I feel it's all the way of marketing actually, because there are so many things that if you wait until it's super easy to measure a new channel, then you're probably late to the channel. Influencers notoriously have been really hard to measure, but if you wait until there's like a platform that makes it super easy to measure influencers, then you're probably late on the influencer trend. Like you kind of sometimes have to just go with your gut and know when there are good signals or else it's just gonna be playing catch up.
1: I do think it presents unique and new challenges as well. And I wonder Natalie, if you feel this at all around like imposter syndrome, which I think is like kind of buzzwordy. Honestly, I don't feel it like a ton anymore, but it is certainly intimidating when we have board meetings and all we hear about is, Hey, why don't you have a seven figure contract in place yet? Are you guys just not going to go enterprise? Like what's going on there? Hey, how come you don't have 17 different products that you can sell and like have all these upsell motions baked in just yet? Like you start to hear all of that and you're like, oh gosh, like I thought we were absolutely crushing it. But then you kind of realize that like some of the goals that it's gonna to take to get to where we really wanna go are pretty substantial and pretty large. So it, it's fun. It kind of forces you to think in ways you hadn't before and uh, presents new challenges. So I guess that's also something that I think about and struggle with a lot.
0: Two thoughts on this. One, I think it's kind of exactly what I said at the beginning of like, when you hit your teenage years, you no longer have the excuse of like you're a child that's little when you're a startup it's you can kind of get away with some stuff or not being the most scalable or you're not having all the great processes or not having enterprise upsell motion not having nine products it's like i'm just trying to figure out product market fit what do you mean like of course i'm not there yet and the second you get there sometimes like the second you enter this phase suddenly people are like well why don't you have all this stuff why aren't you like people just expect your company now you're an adult now even if you're not actually there and i think that is really hard where the early days, you get a lot more leeway and that leeway goes away really fast, especially because like if you're doing well, which is awesome, but if you're doing well, people are like, well, you're doing well, so you have to be perfect at everything. So I think just not sometimes letting that pressure get to you too much, like just knowing every company makes mistakes. I've talked to companies that are way further along than us, way more successful, and everyone has something they're struggling with. No company is perfect. And second, I think to your point of like, you know, this phase is harder. I think that's really hard because there are a lot of people who've worked at a few startups and maybe they haven't hit it. And I know I've talked to other people kind of in similar positions to me who've said this, where it's like, you think once you make it, like once you get product market fit, suddenly things are going to be easy. And it's not. And that's also kind of a hard morale booster. Like, suddenly it's like things just got harder. And I no longer have the excuses of a small startup. Oh, and also, by the way, my old skill set of just being a great IC no longer works. It's a lot. It's a hard challenge. And I think just giving yourself that empathy of, Yes, everything about my job is changing and it's okay that this is difficult. It won't just magically be perfect once you hit product market fit.
1: And honestly, Natalie, like for me, when I think about this selfishly and personally for my team, when I think about like the pretty astronomical goals we have for 2024 quotas are going to go up quite a bit. Targets are going to go up quite a bit. It all comes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast. Like as I'm putting together 2024 planning and I'm realizing the targets we're going to have to attain, I know we can get there, but I know in order for us to get there, I need to make my team happy. I need to make sure that they feel valued excited they're compensated super well they're super excited about like the trajectory of the company if i have their buy-in and we keep their happiness i know we can hit every single goal that we have in front of us and so again from this stage and phase that we're in right now i I honestly feel like the number one job and the best thing i can do for nevatic is keep my team firing on all cylinders because if they are we will get to where we need to be so again it really just comes down to the people at this stage
0: I think one thing I remember directly talking with someone at the office about was like early stages. Again, you just have to build a great product. Like that's ultimately what we are looking for. Yes. You need the market to match it. You got to find your ICP, but you're just building a great product. Once you get that, which is awesome again, like celebrate it. Then you have to build a great team and a great company. That's very different than building a product. And I, I think again, just give yourself a little bit of like reassurance knowing that that's a very different skill set and suddenly the things that mattered when you're building a great product might matter less. Like, for example, when you're building a great product might be fine that everyone's working around the clock constantly, like work-life balance might not be great, but if you want the best A players, you might have to give them a little more leeway. So you might have to be okay with like things take a little bit longer or there's a system in place or I have a thought and I can't just like slack my employees whenever I want. But the best companies time and time again that I've worked with, like gotten to partner with some really amazing companies. And the thing I always see them have in common and this is not gonna be new news to anyone, but it's awesome people, but not just like smart people. It's people I wanna hang out with. That sounds really stupid, but it's people who are I enjoy spending time with. They're smart, but not showy. They clearly just get it. And it's like this intangible thing that's hard to describe, but it's also clear that they just love working there. And it's time and time again, some of the best companies, like the biggest logo is the hottest, getting some of the biggest funding. So like, I think the founders, sometimes the culture stuff, it's like, oh, is that really important? And maybe in the early days, honestly, probably not. Like it kind of is, kind of isn't. But once you hit this point, like it's the difference that makes the best companies versus the okay companies. Ben, before we wrap it all up, any final advice if you're starting to hit this stage for founders or ICs transitioning to leaders to think about?
1: Be people focused. Don't be totally reactive. Don't be too proactive. Somewhere in the middle. I don't know what that looks like for you. Somewhere in the middle. And then again, people focused. I think that's everything.
0: I think for me, taking time to reflect is really important. And you know that sounds cheesy again, but like you're not going to realize the issues with your company or people aren't happy if you are just constantly doing work. Like you have to schedule in time to lift your head up and think about these things, or else they're just going to you're just going to keep pushing it under the rug because you're too busy. So. Give yourself that leeway to have that reflection time. Cool. Well, a little less, a little less on sales and marketing today, but I, I feel like it's funny. Like when Ben and I think of topics, it's always like what's just really on our mind right now. And this was particularly on our mind, so hopefully helpful of anyone maybe entering the stage or maybe if anyone's exit the stage and they're now really big. It was nice to reminisce.
1: Pleasure as always, Natalie. Cheers, everyone.
0: Cheers.